In most cases, when we think about momentum, we tend to think about forward momentum. A locomotive roaring down the track, always heading north. In physics, momentum is agnostic. Forward, backward, up, down, it doesn't matter. But it matters for us. We like to believe in progress in a universe where things get better. It's one reason why so many people find comfort in science. Because it feels like science is always moving forward and that we're the ones pushing it forward. We take a theory, we test it. If all goes well, we use it to wipe out smallpox or power a submarine. It's like that in cancer research too, or it's usually like that. In most cases, we think about cancer research, understanding the biology of a cancer, identifying a target that we want to inhibit, developing a drug against that target, then testing it clinically. This went completely backwards. So momentum isn't always one way, and it's not always constant. Sometimes it shoves you sideways. Sometimes it stops you in your tracks. And sometimes, only sometimes, it drives you to write one of the most astonishing second acts in all of medicine. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. If there's a template for cancer research, it goes more or less like this. Someone in a lab locates a target in a cancer cell, a protein or gene that helps the cell proliferate. Then, someone else builds a molecule, a drug, that can hit and neutralize that target. And finally, someone else tests the drug to see if it's effective and if it's safe. There are variations in the script, speed bumps and hairpin turns and more than a fair share of crashes, but for the most part, Research is a neat play in three acts, discovery, development, and deployment. One interesting aspect of this story is that nobody set out to do this. We had a drug that worked. That's Ben Ebert. He's chair of medical oncology at Dana-Farber. He and his lab study hematological malignancies. Those are cancers that form in the bone marrow or in the immune system. And that drug he's talking about, the drug that worked on cancer, is thalidomide. Yeah, that thalidomide. The anti-nausea drug that caused thousands of horrible birth defects in the 50s and 60s. You see, scientists didn't stop studying thalidomide after the tragedy it caused. If anything, they stepped up their efforts and dug even deeper in the 70s and 80s to see if they could figure out what the heck went wrong. And while they didn't find that fatal flaw, at least at first, they did unearth a few surprises. It was found then to have some potential anti-cancer properties called anti-angiogenic properties blocking blood vessel formation. And that prompted a whole series of clinical trials in cancer with thalidomide, which were almost entirely negative, except it was also used in multiple myeloma. And in multiple myeloma, it had striking activity and ultimately was FDA approved. Let's break that one down. In the lab in vitro, Thalidomide showed potential to block the formation of blood vessels. And because many tumors are angiogenic, because they promote the formation of new blood vessels to fuel their own growth, doctors in several countries did clinical trials with thalidomide for cancer patients. And those clinical trials were almost entirely negative, except in multiple myeloma, 
where the results were dramatic. By the time Ben Ebert first joined Dana-Farber in 2001, doctors across the country were treating their multiple myeloma patients with thalidomide, but it was a sort of gift horse drug. No one knew exactly how or why it worked. They only knew it did work. There were a few theories, the main one being that it was anti-angiogenic, that it blocked the formation of new blood vessels, that it starved tumors. But that didn't explain why it only worked in this one form of cancer. And the ability of a drug to work in a very specific genetic subtype means there has to be a very specific mechanism of drug activity that is, is making that work. So I was very interested in understanding why these drugs work. Many researchers were intrigued by thalidomide and its success in the lab with multiple myeloma. But in order to understand how this once infamous drug was being proposed as a cancer fighter, we need to know a little bit about the disease. Multiple myeloma is a B-cell cancer. It affects a mature form of B-cells, a form known as the plasma cell. Plasma cells are where we get our antibodies. They're a key element in our immune system. Like all blood cells, B-cells start out in our bone marrow. It's where they develop and mature, and it's where, occasionally, trouble starts. In myeloma, there is one clone of cells that produces one abnormal clone of protein. That's Ken Anderson. He directs the Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center and Lebo Institute for Myeloma Therapeutics at Dana-Farber. Therefore, the disease is too many plasma cells in the bone marrow producing monoclonal protein, which we can measure in the blood or urine. A runaway clone making copies of itself, crowding out healthy cells in the bone marrow. It's how a lot of blood cancers work, how they erode our health. The complications of our disease include low red blood cell counteranemia, bone disease, lytic disease or thinning of the bones, osteoporosis, high blood calcium or kidney disease. Ken Anderson has studied multiple myeloma since the early 1980s. His research and clinical trial work have helped develop more than a dozen drugs and close to 30 treatments for a disease that, when he started his career, was considered a death sentence. In my lifetime, um, we've seen myeloma go from a disease where patients only lived a few months to now many times patients having normal lifespan. So it's been quite remarkable. Early on, Anderson was fascinated by the data surrounding thalidomide and myeloma. He wanted to know how the drug worked. He also wanted to know if he could help make it better. He led preclinical studies on two variants of thalidomide. At the time, these variants were called CC5013 and CC4047. The variants promised to be both more effective and safer than thalidomide. And they kept that promise. Today, they're called lenalidomide and pomalidomide. Hundreds of thousands of patients all over the world have benefited from these two compounds. They're used all across the clinical spectrum as frontline therapy in combination with other drugs and after relapses and bone marrow transplants. Now, back in the 80s and 90s and the early aughts, Anderson was one of many researchers who still hadn't unraveled the mechanism that made these drugs work in myeloma. But he got a lot closer. In the lab, he saw that lenalidomide and pomalidomide kept cancerous cells from binding to the bone marrow. 
He also saw that the drugs stemmed the growth of new blood vessels, that they were, in fact, anti-angiogenic, just as advertised. But that, according to Anderson at the time, wasn't what made them effective. He'd seen something else. Most importantly, we showed that these agents, which are now called immunomodulatory agents, upregulated the host's or patient's own T-cell and natural killer cell immune responses against their own myeloma, and they downregulated these T-regulatory cells, which cause immunosuppression. Our immune system is an intricate choreography of cells and signals. It's designed to destroy invasive threats like viruses, bacteria, and cancer. It's also designed to leave healthy cells alone. So our immune system responds to signals to attack and to signals to stand down. Anderson saw that these thalidomide variants upregulated the attack signals and downregulated the stand down signals. The drugs told our immune system to open fire while at the same time squelching any voices calling for surrender. To the best of anyone's knowledge, lenalidomide and pomalidomide were immunomodulatory drugs. They were drugs that modulated the immune system. Anderson says that system is still our first and best defense against disease. It's potent, it's selective, it's adaptive. We could never design it ourselves, <laughs> but we can exploit it and take advantage of it and get the immune system to do what it should have done in the first place, which is recognize the tumor cell for the foreign invader it is and reject it. And that was that, or should have been that, in the early 2000s. The drugs worked, they seemed to be safe. And a drug, thalidomide, that had brought sorrow to thousands of families had been repurposed decades later into a therapy that was saving thousands of lives. Talk about a second act. It's just that, well, thalidomide and lenalidomide and pomalidomide were still a mystery to Anderson and to everyone else. They had theories on how the drugs worked. They had some evidence, both in the lab and in the clinic. There was anti-angiogenesis. There was immunomodulation. Most importantly, patients got better. But none of those theories and none of that evidence came close to explaining one key point. How was it that these agents were so effective against multiple myeloma and so completely ineffective against so many other blood and solid cancers? Let's assume you're a researcher, in this case a cancer researcher. You already know the drill, the template, where you look at a disease, find its Achilles heel, and see if you can invent a bow and arrow that will strike that heel and stick to it. For Ben Ebert, that template made no sense in 2009 when he started looking more closely at thalidomide and its chemical cousins. He still wanted to know why these drugs only worked on multiple myeloma and a few related cancers. But the standard template wouldn't work here because they had the bow and arrow and they had the disease. What they didn't have was a target, an Achilles heel. So what does a researcher do when they have to go off script? When they have to start at the end of the line and work back to the beginning? You shift the train into reverse. You start from your last piece of information. So the first step is to understand what protein the drug binds to. And we did that with a drug called lenalidomide. Ebert wasn't alone on this backwards trip. 
several researchers, including Dana-Farber's Bill Kalin, the 2019 Nobel laureate in medicine, were grappling with the same problem. They wanted to know how the drugs actually worked. In 2010, one year in, Ebert and Kalin and everyone else got an assist from a group at the Tokyo Institute of Technology. This group discovered that thalidomide binds to a protein called cerebellum. Cerebron plays a role in myriad cell processes, and we're still not clear on everything it does. But along with discovering that this protein, cerebron, was the one that binds with thalidomide, the Tokyo group also discovered that cerebron played a role in fetal limb development. That bond, the thalidomide latching onto cerebron in utero, explained the birth defects back in the 50s and 60s, but it didn't explain how thalidomide shut down myeloma or myelodysplastic syndrome, another cancer Ebert was working on and that responded well to the drug. Still, the cerebellum discovery was a great leap forward or backwards. Either way, after the Tokyo discovery, things stalled. It turns out that reverse engineering a drug is complicated and exasperating. I would say that the uh, the postdoc who worked on this project came into my office at least once per week and asked to work on a different project because it was too hard and he wasn't getting anywhere and really worked on it for a couple of years without uh, progress before everything opened up. And everything did open up, eventually, but not before their assumptions were turned on their heads. The first assumption to be upended was that these drugs killed cancer cells by simply goosing the immune system by upregulating those attack signals and downregulating the surrender signals. It wasn't that Ken Anderson was wrong. Thalidomide and lenalidomide and pomalidomide did boost T cells and natural killer cells, but something else was going on with myeloma, and it had to do with cerebron. Cerebron, the protein that bonds with thalidomide and its derivatives, is a receptor on an enzyme complex called ubiquitin ligases. These ligases are part of a system that breaks down or degrades proteins we no longer need. Let's take a closer look at that. Our bodies have a system for degrading proteins. The degrading is done by a protein complex called a proteasome. It's like a big molecular recycling machine. Now how does this proteasome, this recycling machine, know which proteins to degrade? That's where the ubiquitin ligase comes in. The ubiquitin ligase bonds with the protein that needs to be degraded. It then recruits a chain of proteins, a chain called ubiquitin. Together, ligase and ubiquitin tag the selected protein for pickup. The proteasome, the recycling machine, sees the tag and does the rest. It's like sticking on a molecular post-it note, with ubiquitin as the paper and the ubiquitin ligase as the glue. So in this case, thalidomide was binding with cerebron, with a receptor on a ubiquitin ligase. Remember, the glue on the post-it note Something was going on, something out of the ordinary. Was it possible that thalidomide wasn't modulating the immune system? Was it possible that this drug was somehow pushing the ubiquitin ligase to tag proteins for degradation? Now, cancer researchers had fantasized for a long time about breaking down runaway proteins that drive tumors, about a drug that would induce these ligases and ubiquitin to tag a tumor cell and toss that cell out on the curb for the proteasome to take it apart. But they couldn't figure out a way to realize that dream, and anyway, that wasn't how cancer drugs worked. Almost all of our drugs inhibit an enzyme. They block the activity of an enzyme. 
So we assumed that thalidomide and lenalidomide block the activity of this ubiquitin ligase. Ebert and his colleagues knew that almost all cancer drugs worked by blocking the action of an enzyme. It made sense to assume that thalidomide and its variants did the same thing, that they kept the ubiquitin ligase and ubiquitin from sticking to a target. And Ebert was relatively sure he could chart the downstream effects to connect the dots between blocking the post-it notes and stopping the spread of cancer. But he didn't have to because the assumption was wrong. The drugs didn't inhibit the ubiquitin ligases. They enhanced them, expanded their range, and drove them to stick to new targets. But what turned out to be the case is that thalidomide and lenalidomide bind CRBN, this ubiquitin ligase, and induce the enzyme to ubiquitinate and target for degradation new proteins that are not normally degraded by that enzyme. So it refocuses this ubiquitin ligase to target new proteins for degradation. The process Ebert is describing, ubiquitination, was well known and extremely common. As the name suggests, ubiquitin for ubiquitous, these regulatory proteins can be found in almost every living tissue. What was new here was that with the help of these drugs, the ubiquitin ligases, the glue, was targeting and sticking to proteins that Ebert and his colleagues and almost everyone in the field thought were unreachable. More importantly, the proteins the ligases were sticking to were proteins myeloma needed to survive. They were the Achilles heel. In the lab, in the presence of these drugs, the ligases were binding to two proteins on myeloma cells, two transcription factors, proteins that helped immature B cells differentiate into plasma cells. And those transcription factors are not druggable targets. They're not proteins that we thought we could drug. They are essential for the survival of multiple myeloma cells. So when they are degraded, the multiple myeloma cells die. And they're not normally degraded at all by CRBN. But when the drug is present, these proteins are very rapidly and very efficiently degraded. Not only did these drugs enable the ubiquitin ligase to bind with new targets, they enabled the ligase to bind with the two proteins that were driving this particular form of cancer, multiple myeloma, and a few other cancers that were also dependent on that protein. This explained why early trials with thalidomide were so disappointing. It only worked in cancers that displayed these specific proteins. The research project that once felt like a dead end now looked like a four-lane highway. Several postdocs in Ebert's lab signed on to help him and his stalwart grad student. There was tangible momentum. But there were still some bumps in the road. Inspired by their success in vitro, the team moved on to replicate those results in a mouse model. And they hit a wall. We tested the lenalidomide and found no activity whatsoever. No toxicity, no activity, and we thought we had everything wrong. The team scratched its collective head. How could this one be explained? Mice are usually a reliable model, and Cerebron is Cerebron, a receptor on a ubiquitin ligase. But it turns out that Cerebron isn't always Cerebron. Ebert and his team took a closer look at the protein, at the receptor that bonded with the drug. They examined its DNA, and they discovered that mice and humans have a different sequence in the gene that codes for Cerebron. It's only a slight difference, but it's big enough that mice respond to thalidomide in a very different way than humans do. Then Ebert and his team rewrote that mouse DNA sequence. The drug worked just as it did with human cells. 
This misstep had produced something important. Now Ebert and his team had a mouse model they could use to test other drugs that bonded with Cerebron. Historically, finding out about the two DNA sequences was enormously significant because it helped explain how regulators in Europe had failed to see the dangers in thalidomide. They did test the drug on mice and rats, but they didn't know that mice have a slightly different genetic sequence for Cerebron. They didn't know that mouse Cerebron is totally unresponsive to thalidomide. They could have administered any dose and still not seen a reaction. And actually the amazing thing about its first use was, or one of the striking things, was that when it was first tested in preclinical models, in mice and in rats, it had no toxicity at all and was thought to be a wonder drug. It was totally safe and had these really useful properties like inhibiting nausea and therefore was developed rapidly for use in pregnant women because it was thought to be so safe. Ben Ebert and his Dana-Farber colleague Bill Kalin published their findings separately in 2014. Lots of people noticed, including a graduate student in Basel, Switzerland, named Eric Fischer. He'd been working on thalidomide since 2010, and he was familiar with the tragedy, having grown up in Germany, where many of the drug-induced birth defects occurred. So I was studying ubiquitin ligase as it relates to their ability to control DNA repair processes. And it turns out it's the same family of ubiquitin ligases, a member of which is the one that thalidomide binds. And so I became immediately intrigued. Eric Fisher studies the ubiquitin proteasome system. He also directs Dana-Farber's Center for Protein Degradation. But in grad school in 2014, Fisher wasn't thinking about oncology. He was studying how ubiquitin ligases help repair DNA after it's been damaged by excess sunlight. But the more he read about thalidomide, the more he grew intrigued. He saw how the ubiquitin ligase, in the presence of lenalidomide, bonded with two proteins that were vital to myeloma, and how that same ligase, through ubiquitination, led to the destruction of these proteins and shut down the cancer. It was a whole new approach to fighting the disease an approach researchers had dreamt about but didn't think was possible or practical. The concept was around, but many people questioned the clinical utility because people had these thoughts that if you start degrading things, you would probably really mess things up and there would be unexpected toxicities and things would go awfully wrong. But lenalidomide, as Ebert demonstrated, didn't slash and burn through random proteins. It was highly specific. It modulated the ubiquitin ligase so it would target just two proteins and spare the rest. That was proof of concept, at least that protein degradation therapy was practical. But possible? The two targets, the transcription factors that lenalidomide hit, were notoriously smooth, as smooth as cue balls. There didn't seem to be any place for a drug to stick a landing. The two target proteins in question, the Achilles heels, were nicknamed Icaros and Iolos. Their formal names were IKZF1 and IKZF3. IKZF is short for Icaros family zinc finger. The proteins are named after a domain, the zinc finger domain. The zinc finger is a common protein domain. Lots of proteins have them, including Icaros and Iolos. It's almost like Lego. 
you put a few of those together and you get a functional protein. And a C2H2 zinc finger is, is one of these folds, is a fold that's most commonly really known for binding to DNA. The C2H2 zinc finger, that's its full name, is involved in many cellular processes. Sure, in theory, it would have made a great target for drugs, but in practice... People would have considered it entirely impossible to bind to a C2H2 zinc finger with a small molecule. And that's where this sometimes used term undragable comes from. But the nature how thalidomide acts and how it utilizes the fold of the E3 ligase to, to recognize this specific loop in the Z2H2 zinc finger makes it unique and, and really provided this proof of principle that you could target those proteins and that that is likely something we can repeat. And that was the last stop on this upstream trip. When thalidomide, or one of its cousins, was on board, the ubiquitin ligase was able to latch onto a target no one thought it could grab, a C2H2 zinc finger, to boldly go where no drug had ever gone before. It wasn't the final frontier, says Fisher, but it was an important one. It removed these barriers and it removed this classification as something is undruggable because we've seen so many examples now of things we consider undruggable that are actually quite druggable. And I think the thalidomide example is a great example where we hadn't really considered an entire family of proteins, these transcription factors, as druggable. And this is where the momentum shifts, where the story stops analyzing what has happened and starts imagining what could happen. Thanks to research at places like Dana-Farber, we can now target a ligase receptor called cerebron. And when we do that, we can stop multiple myeloma cells from proliferating. We can stop a few other cancers as well. But there are hundreds of these ligases, and there are other types of cancer driven by proteins that might be candidates for targeted degradation. Looking forward, after his 40 years of research, Ken Anderson thinks we're only at the beginning of a long, promising journey. These degraders, I believe strongly, once they have shown their efficacy and safety, primarily in cancer, will likely be very useful quite beyond our field. You could degrade a protein that's essential for bacteria or viral replication. You could degrade proteins that are aberrant in neurologic diseases, storage diseases, rheumatologic diseases. So it's really opened up a whole new class of therapeutics. Next time, we'll shine a spotlight on bench-to-bedside research at Dana-Farber and on a discovery that has helped millions of breast cancer patients around the world. You know, the laboratory work drives us to clinic. The clinic drives us back to the laboratory for more discovery or understanding resistance or how to get things to work better. And that synergism is really part of the blood and the mission of the Dana-Farber to have that research and clinical proximity. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast.
What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org stories and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere.